0: Watched uh, the Crown at all?
1: Yeah, I saw one episode. I watched. You know, my, my girlfriend has watched most of the Crown, and I I think she is like a lot of people, where it's almost like a problematic fave, where it's like, <laughs> yes, the monarchy's bad, but
0: you know, we uh, we started watching it last weekend, and uh, I mean, it you know, it's pretty much what I expected. It's like you know, very high production values, perfectly passable drama. What's so hilarious to me about it is what the stakes are, like what the dramatic stakes are. Like, <laughs> Like in the in the season we're watching, which is the first one, the episode arcs revolve around things like: Is girl boss Queen Elizabeth just become the queen? You know, is she going to speak her mind to uh you know an ailing Winston Churchill, or is she going to get steamrolled? Uh, I, I you see. Yeah, it's, stu- it's stuff like that. Or or which uh, which like retrograde aristocratic title are they going to officially adopt as the family name? Like it's it's like stuff like that.
1: I watched an episode from the second season where it was centered around my. Michael Fagan, who was the intruder who broke in, into Buckingham Palace that time and apparently spent 10 or 15 minutes with the Queen. And it was so funny because, like, in the show, the Queen, as played by Olivia Coleman, could not have been kinder to this man. He breaks in, and, of course, she's, you know, startled and everything when he shows up, but then he starts talking to her about, Oi, you know, here in the palace, you don't know anything about what happens to the working class out there, <laughs> you know? And and she she's listening, and it's like, i think i understand your perspective sir and and eventually the security comes in and they're like don't touch her don't touch her she's like no 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 it's it's all right it's all right (laughs) and and you know they take him away and later in the episode she's talking to margaret thatcher during like the weekly meeting you know that that man who broke into my home had made certain points about the way that the lower <laughs> classes are treated in this country please he is one of my subjects and of course, I was like, okay, I don't know much about this case. Was she was she really this nice to Michael Fagan in real life? And like, of course she wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: that's that's the thing. I mean, so I guess we're currently living through another wave of anglophilia. Like every few years there's one of these, you know, British dramas that's like a huge hit or a drama about Britain that's a huge hit.
1: All of them written by Peter Morgan.
0: Is that is that right?
1: He is behind the crown and he wrote The Queen with um What's her name? Helen Mirren. And he also right. wrote that special relationship movie that we watched.
0: Oh, right, right. Well, because to me, the, the, the last wave of this I remember was kind of uh, typified by Downton Abbey, mm. which, uh, like The Crown, is Tory drama. It's all about, uh, you know, the march of progress and the passage of time, but only within this these like small C conservative structures. So it, like, of course, it's not a show about how the monarchy is retrograde, aristocracy is retrograde. It's just, you know, the monarchy needs to modernize. You know, The Crown is a perfect show for a time when the House of Windsor is actually trying to modernize by having its uh, its favorite sons, you know, marry ladies from the TV and stuff, you know, in anticipation of the coming brand relaunch. I gather that the palace doesn't much like the crown. I've heard that.
1: Is that so? I mean, they, they should they should love it. I mean, it's perfect <laughs> for them.
0: <laughs> but did you ever watch Downton Abbey?
1: No, I, ne- I never saw any of it.
0: It, it. when I say it's Tory drama, I mean, the, the scene you're talking about from The Crown with Michael Fagan, very similar to what Downton Abbey does. It's inspired, you know, in part by a, an older drama called Upstairs, Downstairs, which, as the title suggests, is all about kind of the relationship between, you know, the servants and the people at the top. And in Downton Abbey, those relationships are mostly portrayed as sort of harmonious. Like Downton Abbey is this perfect vision of like Tory class harmony where progress happens you know women get the vote and society changes et cetera, et cetera. but fundamentally the underlying structures remain the same and all of what were actually you know the very brutal and hierarchical relationships between you know the masters and the servants are sort of airbrushed so that you know they're basically sort of cooperative and and everybody you know enjoys their station the servants kind of have class anxiety but it's all it's all class anxiety about like where they are in the servant food chain right. it's not like it has no kind of wider social perspective and the show very much celebrates all that it's like one of the only left-wing characters I remember is this kind of Irish cab driver who, you know, reads John Stuart Mill and Karl Marx and stuff, but he eventually just marries into the family. So he, he just becomes part of like the uh, aristocratic house that the Granthams, I think they're called.
1: You know, the funny thing about these Peter Morgan dramas is it's true they are very much about the winds of change and progress and the House of Windsor having to adapt to it. But the thesis of all of them is, isn't it great that there's this central pillar who <laughs> who, you know, even as everything else changes, she has to remain the same and represent like, I don't know, the British stiff upper lip. Like Peter Morgan also did a play that Helen Mirren acted in on the West End stage where it was structured around... 10 minute scenes of Elizabeth meeting every one of the prime ministers who served during her tenure. Right. I I guess the thesis being that, you know, politicians come and go. uh,
0: (laughs) But aristocracy is forever. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And thank God. (laughs) What I find so funny about, you know, the kind of waves of Anglophilia in well, North American, but particularly American culture. I mean, Canada has a different relationship culturally to Britain. Also, in some ways, a kind of fraught and annoying one. I mean, you know, Queen Elizabeth actually is our <laughs> is our head of state officially.
1: I know she's on the money.
0: And yeah, pretty, pretty <laughs> yeah. soon Prince Charles will be. But one of the things I find so funny about Anglophilia is that, you know, I actually identify you know very deeply on on both kind of an emotional and an intellectual level and on you know on a personal level i identify with britain but everything i identify with is like the exact opposite of what you find in most of the sort of like english cultural fetishism that's popular in north america because like right. I watched... it's,
1: it's the trade unionists and the farmers and, this yeah, and it's, that. yeah
0: yeah it, yeah right it's like the radicals who wanted to do away with all of this yeah because i because it's from them that i partly learned my politics it's like when jeremy corbyn was refusing to sing god save the queen And like this was considered this like horrific insult that he just bowed with his head respectfully and wouldn't sing God Save the Queen because he's a Republican who doesn't believe in the monarchy. You know, the British press obviously, you know, threw a conniption fit, but I thought, great, that's great. Even symbolic acts of defiance like that are awesome.
1: Oh, God, within 10 years, Jeremy Corbyn is going to be the villain on one of these shows.
0: (laughs) Well, in the first uh, in the first episode of The Crown, I mean, you know, part of a different labor tradition than Jeremy Corbyn. But in the very first episode of The Crown, there's this really funny line of very like clunkily inserted expository dialogue. It's the wedding of Prince Philip and Princess Elizabeth, soon to be Queen Elizabeth. And then there's some minor character who points to a bespeckled gentleman look you know, looking awkwardly in the corner and is like, That's our Prime Minister, Mr. Atley, or whatever. And I think that's the only scene that Clement Attlee appears, and then of course Winston Churchill is the star of the show.
1: Well, in America, they don't have a monarchy, but they have something almost as good, which is celebrities. Uh, I've decided that, you know, the world is pretty rough right now. We all need ways to distract from it. And one of the things that's been distracting me is uh, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Isn't Isn't that a few years old? It's a few years old, but it will also never end. Uh, This week, there was a great cover story in The Hollywood Reporter called Implosion, which was all about Johnny Depp's career downfall. And part of what sparked this on was getting back to Britain. Johnny Depp sued one of the right-wing tabloids. It might have been the Daily Mail. I'm not sure, but he he sued them because they put the phrase wife beater in a headline. So he sued them for libel. All of this couple's dirty laundry got aired at this trial. You know, foul-mouthed text messages Stories of profligate drug abuse, sexual details, things of that nature. And eventually the court ruled against Johnny Depp. They ruled that the, the paper, uh, based on the information it had and also based on the testimony, was, it was fair of them to say that. And he's still continuing to sue, though. And this article that I read in The Hollywood Reporter was all about, like, how toxic he's become. Like, any sort of publicly traded movie studio isn't going to deal with him anymore. Like, he got fired from the Harry Potter franchise. Was he in the Harry Potter movies? He was in the Fantastic Beasts film, oh. uh, which which I didn't see. You know those, right? Those Fantastic Beasts? This is like... It's like the Silmarillion, you know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, something can't just end now. It has to, it has to go on. On forever which incidentally i saw that today disney is making a big announcement for what they're calling a significant expansion of the star wars universe so you know your guess is as good as mine about which you know minor character is getting its own spin-off show
1: God, it's just incredible that Star Wars franchise just built on the bones of like two good movies that were made 40 years ago.
0: I want to know more about that guy that uh, answers the door in Jabba's Palace, like the guy with the sort of braids that are just part of his head, like the braids made of skin. I think his name might be Bib Fortuna. What's his backstory? I'd like to see a little more of Watto. Uh,
1: (laughs) We're big fans of Watto around here. (laughs) Anyway, the detail of that Johnny Depp article that I liked so much was apparently, at his height, he had a fortune of $650 million, which, of course, he pissed away.
0: How do you piss away $600 million? How many vintage guitars can you buy for that?
1: I mean, he would spend, like, tens of thousands of dollars on wine a month. He has, he currently has, like, present tense, has 14 properties around the world the detail that I liked the best was he spent $5 million to launch Hunter S. Thompson's ashes out of a cannon, like (laughs) in tribute to the great Gonzo journalist, (laughs) which I don't think that takes $5 million. I think you could get that for maybe 10,000.
0: You could get that at a bargain. Uh, At what uh, at what point Did he, was he phased out of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, which is another thing. I mean, we've bristled against the use of the word franchise on this show.
1: It has its uses,
0: though. But it it has its uses when something really is no longer a film series. It's just a commercial property. Like, it's just a sort of floating signifier for something kind of vague. And Pirates of the Caribbean sort of became that. I mean... I don't think I saw past the third movie. I think our mutual Same. friend Brandon and I like started hate watching, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, Nine, Curse of the Jade Scorpion, Curse of the Jade Scorpion, yeah. whatever whatever it was called. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, it was just like unwatchable garbage, but he was still in that one doing his sort of zany brooding Willy Wonka shtick. You know, and saying "yo ho ho" or whatever. But like, at what point was he phased out? Didn't they sort of replace him with Javier Bardem or something?
1: No, no, he was in, uh, he was in the last one. But they're they're shooting a new one right now, as we speak, that has Margot Robbie in it, like as as Lady Jack Sparrow. <laughs> um, and he's not he's not involved in it anymore because after this court ruling, he got fired from the Harry Potter movies. So that is. <laughs> That is a testament to the degree to which he is radioactive Wow,
0: right going to have to spend $5,000 on wine a month now, <laughs> asshole.
1: I mean, he might have to sell seven of his 14 properties. <laughs> I don't think anybody should have that amount of money. But I think that if I had $650 million, like if anyone were allowed to have it, I think it should be me. And I think I could handle it really
0: well. It's so funny, you know, because I have a a book proposal I've been working on for a while about billionaires. And, you know, one of the premises is that we need to distinguish, you know, and and this is not my original idea. I just think it's important. We need to distinguish very strongly between wealth and income, right? Mm -hmm. It's important to understand that when somebody has you know 50 million dollars that's not just the same that that doesn't just mean they can buy a lot of stuff and that's not income as most people would understand it i don't know how much emily radakowski is worth for example maybe she has like 10 million dollars or something like that But it's crazy to think that she is still closer to you and me by so many orders of magnitude in terms of how much money she has than she is to Johnny Depp or perhaps, you know, more aptly, you know, Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or somebody like that.
1: But I mean, you got to think like the intellectual property value of the Michael and us podcast, like we may not have all that much in our bank accounts right now, but this podcast is probably worth like. One hundred and fifty million dollars. Yeah, I mean, there's
0: not there's not a lot of liquidity, but there's yeah. you know, if we were to sell it, these like, are these can... are the show is a valuable asset. Yeah. yeah, but you know, the point is when people have you know obscene amounts of money, you know, particularly when they become billionaires or when they have you know five hundred million, six hundred million, seven hundred million dollars. Like that's not even really wealth; it's just property. They just own things. And the thing you're telling me about Johnny Depp uh, sort of undermines that thesis because I've always maintained, like, you know, the, the standards of rejoinder to somebody that rich is like, well, what do you really need all this money for? What's that line that uh, Jack Nicholson says to uh, John Houston in Chinatown? You know, what can you buy that you don't have already? It's right. like, turns out there's plenty you can buy that you don't have already if you spend <laughs> like tens of thousands of dollars a month on wine. Five million dollars to
1: shoot Hunter. 100- us to and ashes <laughs> out of a cannon yeah
0: yeah if yeah if you're dumb enough that absolutely can be money that you just shell out on extraneous garbage
1: anyway there is there is one man who unites both england and johnny depp and his name is terry gilliam <laughs> and on this episode we are talking about the film that defines his career 1985's orwellian satire brazil <laughs> Do you wake from your finest fantasy only to return to your daily nightmare? Is your mother about to look
0: younger than you do? Does the woman of your dreams I love you. In my dreams, I love you. still have a few doubts?
1: Then it's time to take a stand.
0: To break out of your dull, humdrum life, and into Brazil. You're so pleased you can make it. Yeah, we've only done one Gilliam film on this show, and it was uh Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, a film which I mean, I was gonna say it doesn't it didn't hold up to scrutiny, but then again, I'm not sure either of us ever particularly liked it. I remember talking about it with you probably more than ten years ago, and our basic line on it, you know, mutually agreed was if you take any ten minutes in this film, it's it's kinda cool. But as a film it doesn't really work. And I'm I'm pretty sure, you know, we did it, I don't know, six or seven months ago, something like that. That was pretty much our takeaway then as well. But Brazil is really Terry Gilliam's magnum opus as a filmmaker. I guess you could say he's kind of an uneven filmmaker, but this is really his best known film and probably his best film. I think you'd agree.
1: I think so, yeah. this are Time Bandits.
0: I haven't seen Time Bandits since I was a kid, but I'd, uh, I'd be really keen to revisit that, perhaps yeah. for the show sometime. Yeah, same. But we've been wanting to do this one for a while, and I think it's kind of a natural successor to our last Patreon episode, which was about George Orwell. Any dystopian film or or story written after 1948 lives kind of in the shadow of George Orwell. And I believe in the conception phase of Brazil, some of the titles that uh, were considered included The Ministry, uh, 1984 and a half was another one, (laughs) The Ministry of Torture, uh, How I Learned to Live with the System so far. Uh, Interestingly, another one considered was So That's Why the Bourgeoisie Sucks, But, you know, you can see how at least a few of those, you know, really pay homage to George Orwell or directly inspired. You know, some of the imagery in this film looks a lot like the film adaptation of 1984, which we should do sometime. It's pretty good. I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, it's quite good. Anyway, one of the things we discussed on our Orwell episode was how 1984 uh, has sort of become this generic signifier of authoritarianism that is now sort of so vaguely defined that it's even picked up sometimes rather awkwardly and clunkily by the right. It's kind of like how Republican politicians will invoke Martin Luther King without realizing that he was a socialist, sort of similar thing with Orwell. Now I have my own reading of kind of George Orwell's sketch of authoritarianism and how it is primarily a left-wing sketch and not something that really could be taken taken up by the right if they understood it properly. Brazil is a more interesting challenge, I think. It portrays a dystopian world, a world where, you know, there's kind of an overbearing state, mass surveillance, things of that nature. But whether it's critique of those things is sort of motivated by more left-wing concerns or more kind of a right-wing or perhaps Thatcherite concerns, I think is very much open for debate. And that's, uh, that's what I'm most interested in discussing here.
1: Yeah, I'm interested in that too, because I always assumed that this was sort of a liberal-ish movie. Watching it this time, I think I detect a kind of libertarian streak in it. Gilliam's thesis here, and it's a thesis that recurs throughout his filmography, is that bureaucracy is bad and dehumanizing. Bureaucracy in and of itself. I don't think he really looks that far or has ever looked that far beyond like, who are the people who are like setting up the bread lines?
0: Yeah, no, it's interesting you'd say that because um, going into this film, I mean, I've actually seen it, uh, this is probably my fifth or even sixth viewing. I've seen it quite a few times over the years. Yeah, me too. Every time I watch it, you know, what you remember is the aura of the film much more than the actual plot.
1: And I think, you know, Gilliam, like a lot of artists, is not an intellectual. And so what he's good at doing is, you know, in addition to what he's obviously good at doing, which is creating memorable images, he's good at kind of like tapping into a certain zeitgeist, channeling a certain vibe. I mean, this movie is kind of like a soup of complaints that he has about society from consumerism to plastic surgery to, yes, bureaucracy. And together it sort of creates this feeling of like a state of the union of modern life circa the year 1985.
0: Yeah, and and I was going to say revisiting it, uh, I noticed a lot more references to things like consumerism, things more concerned with the market uh, than I had on previous viewings. This film reminds me actually uh, very much of a a political political sitcom, uh, also from the 1980s, another British show uh, called Yes, Minister, or in its second season, Yes, Prime Minister. Are you familiar with this show?
1: I mean, I know it is just one of those shows that old people would watch when I was a kid.
0: It, it is one of those shows, but it's brilliant. It's it's great, mm-hmm. actually. The incredible thing about that show, I mean, so it's, it's a show about an imaginary minister who later becomes prime minister called Jim Hacker, uh, who works in the hilariously named Ministry of Administrative Affairs. So it's a ministry that manages bureaucracy, like it's bureaucracy overseeing bureaucracy. Years later, by the way, I had a laugh uh, about that because uh, I had a friend who worked for something called the Red Tape Reduction Commission, which was an, which was part of the, which was an initiative of the federal government and sounded very much like an episode of Yes Minister uh, made real. But, you know, so in Yes Minister, Jim Hacker, you know, he's kind of the protagonist and he's sort of this, you know, hapless politician, you know, definitely cares more about his career than any particular agenda. It is completely unclear which party he represents. He could he's just like a generic British politician which I absolutely love. And, you know, his kind of main antagonist, I suppose, his main rival is this guy, Sir Humphrey Appleby, who's the show's kind of most memorable and funniest character. Sir Humphrey Appleby is, you know, sort of the lead civil servant, first in the Ministry of Administrative Affairs, and then the top civil servant in the British government. And Sir Humphrey Appleby is the classic sort of privately educated, possibly Etonian member of the British establishment. He hangs out in these smoke-filled rooms and drinks brandy and kind of looks down on, uh, you know, the rest of society. And why the show is so brilliant is because it can be interpreted in two completely different ways. You can read it either as a Thatcherite show about how government is self-maximizing, how bureaucracy will always try to make itself bigger, or you can read it as a show about how you know a privately educated ruling class that is unelected tells elected people what the limits of what they can do are. And any time you know Hacker has a bright idea that might actually make something better, uh, he's told it's impossible by you know a civil servant who just, you know, drowns him in bureaucracy. I think Brazil presents a very similar kind of analytical dilemma. As you say, it is much more of a soup of different concerns that Gilliam has about modern life. And and for that reason, it can be read in a whole bunch of different ways. I mean, it's true that it's about an all-encompassing state, which... You know, you have to think that somebody like Gilliam would have at least been aware of or would have been in conversation with, you know, the sort of Thatcherite critiques of the Keynesian welfare state that were sort of in the ascendance, you know, 10 years before this film was made and were really sort of at their peak uh, when it was made. Those critiques really putting Britain's economic malaise at the time on, you know, this overbearing state where everything was technocratically managed. And, you know, some people genuinely believing that if we don't stop the Keynesian welfare state in its tracks, what we're going to end up with is just a society where it's impossible to tell where the government stops, where the state stops and society begins. So you could read Brazil that way, but as I said, this time watching it, I observed a lot more references to market forces, consumerism, things like that, Uh, even Christianity, there are a number of references to that. It's almost as if kind of every potential source of authority, you know, private industry, the church and the state have all just kind of congealed into this one kind of Mm. massive force that just encompasses absolutely everything, you know, the police as well.
1: And we don't get a sense of what the ideology of this state is. To Gilliam, again, the problem is bureaucracy itself. The state via bureaucracy seeks to crush our individual personalities, put a number on everything and devalues our imaginations. And so like ultimately, the Jonathan character who is the audience surrogate has to retreat to a world of dreams because this is where we can be truly free this is where our overlords whether it be corporate or governmental or whatever it is in this film can't get us and what do they do when they get us? They, I guess they stifle our ability to dream.
0: Yeah, and again, you know, that can be read in so many different ways. I mean, the state is terrifying, you know, and there's a scene early in the movie where, uh, you know, the kind of stormtroopers show up at someone's house and uh, and arrest them. But what's amazing is that in a very kind of Foucauldian way, the, the stormtroopers are just depicted as like bureaucrats with guns because that's mm-hmm. fundamentally what they are. So yeah, they'll kick the door in and they'll point guns at you and they'll arrest you. They'll, you know, take you away in the night but the whole process, you know, is undergirded by bureaucracy. And you have to, you know, sign forms in triplicate and things mm-hmm. like that. Anytime you see the the state police with their uh, helmets off... They're just like bored office workers. Like, this is essentially a white-collar job. They're completely alienated, you know, from what they're doing. And the bureaucracies that are overseeing all this, of which the main character played by Jonathan Price, you know, works in one, one of the less important ones. You know, the people there just walk through corridors uh, and, you know, stack pieces of paper and push pencils. And they really are, are completely removed from the reality of what they're doing.
1: And occasionally they watch a movie on the little TV in their booth covertly while the boss played by Ian home like looks over them.
0: Right. And what is it that Jonathan Price and Ian Holm care about most uh, at the start of the movie and really for the first half? Um, it's that the guy arrested early in the movie. Um, he was the wrong guy because a fly landed on a piece of paper. And so the police were sent to the wrong place. And they're, they're less concerned with finding the guy and like an injustice that's been done. Uh, and more concerned with the fact that you know, the wrong credit card account has been billed, the wrong bank account has been billed for the arrest, because when you get arrested, and this speaks to what I was saying about how you actually know Notice a lot of things which actually don't seem like they're critiques of the state, or at least not the Keynesian welfare state. More, if anything, uh, potential kind of nascent critiques of the neoliberal state, where, you know, when you get arrested, they make you pay a fee. You know, you have mm-hmm. to pay for your own incarceration. You know, there's a premium on that. You know, if uh, you have to get like prison insurance and things like that when they put you behind bars. Um, and so, this bureaucracy is concerned with correcting that. They care about this numerical error that's happened. but Then they're also concerned that uh, it not be like a black mark on this ministry. They want another ministry to have made the mistake. Because the only stakes in any of this are, I don't know, the, the reputations of these just like Leviathan bureaucracies of which are constituent parts of this of uh, sprawling apparatus.
1: Yeah, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is that really small one where Jonathan Price has this little office and he's got a desk, but the the desk is being shared between two offices. And so he gets in like this little tug of war match with the guy in the office next to him. And that scene, you know, like a lot of scenes in the movie is very funny in in how it shows the way that this like very dehumanizing workplace pits people against each other, has them like fighting each other for table scraps. But even despite this, I don't think we ever get a sense of why the society is the way it is. In 1984, there's an animating ideology to all this, but in this, it seems like society has just sort of erupted this way. It's, it's turned into this big tangle of chords, and nobody knows why, and nobody knows how to untangle it.
0: I hereby inform you on powers entrusted to me under Section forty-seven, Paragraph seven of Council Order number four
1: three eight four seven six, that Mr. Buttle, Archibald, ah. residing at four hundred and twelve North Tower, Shangri La Towers, has been invited to assist the Ministry of Information with certain inquiries, and that he is liable to certain financial obligations as specified in Council Order R B Stroke C Z Stroke nine o seven Stroke X. Sign here, please. Ah. 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 Ah.
0: Ah. There's a lot more to say about the movie, but uh, just quickly, we should do a a rundown of the plot. I mean, there's actually...
1: The plot's very busy. The Um... plot's
0: very busy, but, but also not a lot, you know... Exactly happens. I mean, like I said, what you most remember about this film is kind of the the general aura, the general feeling, the atmosphere, much more than the specifics of what happens. It reminds me a lot, and I, you know, this is probably not incidental, of, of Kafka's The Trial, which is a book I've I've only read once, which I remember most because of you know the feeling it, it evokes more than you know what specifically happens. And Brazil is labyrinthine in the same way. You know, Kafka's The Trial is actually a very tedious read, or at least I found it a very tedious read because it's pretty much just the main character, uh, visiting different bureaucracies and kind of being frustrated. And, you know, and again, I'm sure the plot is very busy, but I don't remember much of it. Brazil is sort of the same way. Um, And so we don't need to go through every kind of every specific detail, but we should probably just do a quick rundown for anyone who hasn't seen it.
1: Well, the plot kicks into motion when there is, I guess, a computer error or or a typing error when a bug gets into like the typewriter type contraption that prints out an arrest warrant. There's an arrest warrant out for a freedom fighter type, somebody posing as a heating engineer, but actually a a terrorist slash resistance fighter played by Robert De Niro.
0: Yeah, he's a terrorist because he he shows up and and like fixes people's mechanical problems with their air conditioners and stuff without filling out the proper forms.
1: His name is Tuttle, but because a bug gets into the contraption, it gets printed as Buttle. So the state instead arrests poor innocent Buttle. Sam Lowry, played by Jonathan Price, is the low-level government bureaucrat tasked with figuring out this problem. From this point on, it isn't so much a, a well-oiled narrative as a series of scenes and characters. There's his upstairs neighbor, Jill, who's another freedom fighter who keeps showing up in his dreams. And, and he is constantly rescuing her in his dreams from these various enemies who I guess are supposed to represent the system.
0: Yeah, and there's some, some weird visual choices on Gilliam's part there because his main nemesis that shows up in those dream sequences is this kind of like large... Uh,
1: Kegamusha-like samurai Yeah, this figure. sort of
0: samurai. It reminded me of fighting like a boss in Sekiro. I mean, it is literally a Sekiro boss that he fights in those dream sequences. I don't know what to make of that.
1: I don't know either, but one of the things I kind of like about the movie is how it is this soup of a lot of different cultures and visual ideas it's i think it's mostly supposed to be london but there's a lot of america in it and there's even a bit of asia in these scenes the future dystopia in this movie is a retro futurist dystopia. Yeah, and
0: it's, it's postmodern.
1: Yeah, full of like weird thrift store artifacts. One of the other major characters is Sam's mother, who is a plastic surgery addict. And I want to get your opinion about this because this strand of the movie where she's constantly getting like increasingly more grotesque plastic surgery from Jim Broadbent and all of her society friends are getting it as well. It feels of a piece with the movie, because really anything could feel of a piece with this movie— but it is somewhat tangential, I guess, f- from the critique of government.
0: Right. I mean, I think it's more of just, you know, it's more a critique of consumerism and just like people don't have anything to do. Mm-hmm. We, we do get the sense that there's a, still a class system in this world and that, you know, the Jonathan Price character, his mother is sort of, you know, of a more affluent type. I mean, she's also older, so I guess she might be retired. But yeah, it seems like she's part of society. And so, you know, there's clearly a class of people that are just, you know, there's like a leisure class and they don't have anything to do. The whole society just sort of exists to stimulate, you know, their consumerism, or at least that's how I read it. You know, we also get, I think, related to this, which maybe situates it a little better within the satire of the movie. You know, we get kind of hints of people towards the end of the movie. It's it's Christmas time. And so people are shopping for Christmas. You know, there's a scene where there's a little girl sitting on Santa's lap and she asks to get a credit card for Christmas. We also see a lot of posters for kind of travel and, and tourism and things like that. A lot of very chirpy sort of consumer slogans, you know, signs reading things like happiness, we're all in this together, you know, right, and it's unclear, right. you know, who is taking out that ad? Is it somebody in the government? Is it state bureaucrat? Is it, or is it some kind of, you know, private company?
1: Or is it like North Korea, where you go on the subway and all the ads are just kind of like ads for dear leader or ads for the, the state ideology?
0: Right. I mean, in there, that is the state, but, you know, in this movie, Movie, I'm not sure it's it's really clear. I mean, this kind of sprawling apparatus of, of surveillance and control, it seems to be every potential source of authority and hierarchy, um, You know, every potential enforcer of hierarchy, you know, state, private industry, church, police, whatever, just all kind of congealed, you know, into one. And the result is this very Kafkaesque bureaucracy.
1: After all the business with Buttle and Tuttle in the first half, much of the second half is spent with Sam trying to navigate this bureaucracy to find more information about jill his neighbor freedom fighter the object of his lust and love long story short he eventually is able to falsify the records to fake her death so that she can escape the system unscathed they share a night together but the state captures them imprisons them and the last section of the movie depicts them triumphing over the state until you discover that actually they never did escape Sam has just retreated into that world of dreams after being lobotomized
0: and it's not clear what's happened to Jill is it I mean no. he's told that she's killed but then that turns out to be have been in a dream sequence as well so it's unclear what her fate is
1: this last section I think is deliberately meant to hearken back to 1984 in 1984 the protagonists are able to like share a few brief moments together before the system finally crushes them once and for all I wasn't sure in the second half of this movie exactly why the system was so so hell-bent on destroying these two people.
0: I think that probably gets at why this film is is ultimately so interesting and why there are so many potential interpretations. Because as you said, there's no apparent animating ideology to any of this. The ideology is just management and control. But You know, those are very technocratic things. Like, there's no ideological elan that's propelling this, you know. It's just a panopticon for panopticon's sake. And this actually reminds me of something I once heard Slavoj Zizek say about how, you know, Western liberals always think of the erstwhile states in the Eastern Bloc countries as being these kind of totalizing things like the society in 1984. And, uh, you know, he said, actually, that's completely wrong. It's like the dominant theme of a lot of those countries was actually just inefficiency. And Western societies, you know, are often much better organized. It wasn't as if, at least where he grew up, it wasn't as if the state bureaucracy was so lethal that it could just kind of control everything. And obviously, in Brazil, this state bureaucracy is bent on kind of crushing deviance, but it is very inefficient as well and this is something that Gilliam depicts really beautifully through all of these machines which I guess he probably designed uh, and and maybe even played a role in building I don't know you know this comes through in really simple things like there's a scene where Jonathan Price takes a shower at the beginning and you can see that the plug for the drain has to lower itself all the way down like from the ceiling or from the shower head which like doesn't really make any sense.
1: I definitely think that one of the things in this movie's favor is that every single shot has something kind of nifty to look at.
0: Yeah there's always something cool going on and if you look closely you can see all these different cues that Gilliam's giving you for how absurdistly inefficient this society really is. Every time anyone gets in an elevator and you see the buttons like the buttons are just kind of different numbers or letters connoting different floors, but they're just arbitrarily arranged like the numbers aren't in any order. These kind of tubes and pipes uh, running serpentine through every single building just seem to be entangling and like it's unclear what function they serve. And when any, anyone comes to do repairs on them or make adjustments, they have to sever a whole bunch of the pipes or move them and put them out of the way. So it's almost impossible to make even the most rudimentary repairs to anything. You know, the bureaucracies aren't even particularly good at, you know, managing the arrest and incarceration of people. They're very lethal when they do it, but the different parts of the bureaucracy don't cooperate very well. You know, they're not very efficient. Even, you know, you mentioned the scene where Jonathan Price, after he gets a promotion and he's working in the, uh, I guess it's called the Ministry of Information Retrieval, which is a step up from uh, the Ministry of Records, where he's worked earlier. You know, he, he gets this little office, his, his new boss, played by the great English actor Ian Richardson, who people will know from the far superior British House of Cards. Uh, he's the main character you know gives him this office and it's yes this just this tiny little cubicle and like the office doesn't work as an office on even the most basic level it's not just that it's you know a very dehumanizing place you know very antiseptic there are no windows there's no natural light there's a divider between uh, his office and the neighboring one such that anytime his neighbor even lightly brushes up against the uh, divider all the books fall down on his desk like nothing in this world works and I really like that on the level of satire because I think the real Existing versions of a lot of what this film is critiquing have often been that way, much more than you know, the world of 1984, where uh, all the technology is analog, just like in Brazil, but everything is actually pretty lethally efficient, and the party has a clear animating ideology. Are you telling me that this is illegal? Well, yes, and no officially, only central service operators are supposed to touch the stuff. Would you hold this, please? I'm-
1: but nowadays, with all the new rules and regulations, they can't get decent staff anymore. So they tend to turn a blind eye, as long as I'm careful. Mind you, if ever they could prove that I've been working on their equipment. (laughs) Well, now that's a pipe of a different color. But well, wouldn't it be simpler just to, you know,
0: me, oh, like- please? Sorry, yes. There are things about this film that I think are a little bit retrograde. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I just mean that technology has obviously moved on to a point where, you know, the the analog visuals, you know, all the technology being sort of analog, being, you know, pipes and, you know, mechanical stuff and cogs. I mean, that doesn't really, uh, that doesn't really work anymore. Because today surveillance is a completely digital thing. I mean, recording this over Zoom, and I don't think anybody needs a warrant to watch this. They could just watch us record our podcast. I wrote an article a few months ago about all the surveillance technology that's being used to watch people and monitor their productivity while they're working from home. That doesn't take pipes and cogs and things of that nature to do anymore. It can all be done on a computer. So in that way, I think there is something that's a little bit dated about this movie. If you go into the headquarters of mass surveillance now, you'll probably find them quite palatial. You'll see big comfy couches and beanbag chairs and people playing table tennis. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been, I once went to the Google HQ here in Toronto, and that's you know it's 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 exactly like what you hear. It's it's actually very warm and inviting. And wow, why would anyone want to leave, right? (laughs) Yeah, there's there's almost like no paper anywhere. I remember people coming for meetings. someday I'll tell the story of what uh, why I was in meetings with Google people. It's it's a pretty funny story. But yeah, people would show up to meetings with just a cup of coffee and like no, like they just had like iPads or I don't know whatever the Google Pad is. They weren't taking physical notes a lot of the biggest bureaucracies in our uh, in our society today i mean We still have government bureaucracy, obviously, but a lot of the biggest bureaucracies are private. And if you visit, you know, financial bureaucracies like those you find at the center of most major cities, they actually look very warm and inviting. I mean, they might be kind of antiseptic, but if you've ever been into like the Scotiabank building or the BMO Mm -hmm. building in downtown Toronto, you know, they have these huge lobbies, you know, with beautiful marble. They don't look like the Ministry of Information uh, in Brazil at all.
1: Also, if thought crime is indeed a thing right now, who are the ones enforcing it? It's not the government so much as it is the corporations that can fire you for a tweet.
0: Actually, that's wrong, Will. It's woke people and SJWs online. We have to we have to put a stop to this. That's the real 1984.
1: I mean, judging from some of Terry Gilliam's recent public statements, I think he might he might agree with that statement. Um, but but what he should be concerned about are like these big tech giants that would seek to I don't know like quote unquote deplatform problematic speech.
0: Right, and that's what where I think this film is uh despite it visually being kind of dated i mean in a sense all dystopian fiction made before the digital digital age or all science fiction looks dated visually just because everything has too many buttons and is too analog but despite this kind of visual datedness of brazil i think it does kind of reach into the 21st century and that, i think the face of authoritarianism in a country like the united states it really is going to be quite boring it's going to smile back at you you know It's gonna be sprawling, uh, albeit in ways unseen. It's gonna come courtesy, you know, not just of the state acting autonomously as, you know, conservatives always warn about, but at the hands of a sort of nexus of private industry and the state, which become completely indistinguishable. I mean, we've talked a lot in previous episodes about you know who Joe Biden is appointing to his cabinet, right? And so many of these people are just people that, you know, the cliche, right, is the revolving door. But I mean, it is literally a revolving door between uh, the state and private industry. Like the people who manage the state are increasingly indistinguishable from the people who work for Uber and, you know, these big tech companies. I mean, look at, you know, where does David Plouffe, uh, formerly of the Obama administration, work? Uber. I think Robert Gibbs, you know, there there are other former Obama alumni working at, you know, McDonald's, Lyft, places like that. Someone tapped to be Biden's transportation secretary, although I don't think it's been confirmed yet as somebody who worked for Lyft. So I think there's a sense in which the world Brazil portrays actually is pretty forward thinking in terms of what this could look like not in the literal visual sense, but in the sense of being boring and sprawling. And in the sense of there, you know, not always really being, you know, much of an animating ideology, you know, ideology in a possible dystopian future, as I see it, you know, will be kind of a private matter. I mean, sort of in the way that it is now, in the way that, you know, McKinsey consultants can, you know, go to the Women's March and then also, you know, help Donald Trump run ICE at the same time or whatever. You know, they're often people who went to Yale or, you know, Harvard or whatever, but have the and have these kind of liberal sensibilities, but then will just be conscripted by capital and will work for profit. Brazil doesn't exactly center profit uh, in its critique, but I think through some generous interpretation, you can see how in some ways it is actually throwing forward to that kind of future. That is a dystopia brought to you by, you know, consultants and managers and members of the professional managerial class.
1: You know, one of the scenes of the movie that felt the most prescient to me was that bit towards the end where there's a terrorist attack at the fancy dining hall and the hall is just full of carnage and mutilated bodies and they quickly, like, shovel everything away and then everybody starts dining again. That feels very much like modern life where just, like, awful things happen all the time, whether it's extreme poverty or a mass shooting, and then, you know, the dining just continues because, you know, uh, what are you gonna do? (laughs)